You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. On February 1st, the Burmese military detained high-ranking officials of the National League for Democracy and the leader of the country, Aung San Suu Kyi. It was a coup, haunted by memories of past coups, 1962, when the military first seized power, and then 1988, when student-led protests against that government led to another coup that killed at least 6,000 people. In 2007, hundreds of thousands of monks protested in what became known as the Saffron Revolution, and the military cracked down again, arresting hundreds of people, some of whom still remain in prison. Despite that bloody history, today, tens of thousands of people are returning to the streets as part of the so-called civil disobedience movement. It feels like we're all waiting to see what will happen next. Is this the end of Myanmar's decade-long experiment in democracy? Or could it be the start of a new, better era? To give us a better picture of where things stand and how they've gotten to this point, we're joined by Columbia University anthropologist Jeff Aung, who has spent years working in Burma and has written about the country for more than a decade. Thanks so much for joining me, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. So can you walk us through sort of the timeline of the past week or the past couple months? Like, what was the cause of what's going on now? Well, in in super broad strokes, um, there was a national election in in early November. The National League for Democracy um, won overwhelmingly, even more um, strongly than they won in the 2015 national election. Um, Some people were a little bit surprised by this, having expected the NLD perhaps to win convincingly enough, but perhaps not to the same degree as in 2015, whereas they actually came out more strongly this time in terms of the election results. The military sought to cast doubt on those results quite soon thereafter, making um, allegations around election fraud related to voting lists and voter identifications. I think um, somewhere around 90,000 alleged cases of fraud are said to have taken place, according to the military. And they kept pushing the um, civilian government to address this, and the government um, kept uh, not addressing that. Um, I, I think more or less because it was understood that these allegations were were groundless. 
And eventually in late January, the situation started coming to a head. The military spokesperson um, declined to rule out the possibility of a coup d'etat. The Union Election Commission then did consider the results and and rejected uh, the allegations of fraud. Um, There were statements of concern from embassies uh, and UN agencies. Um, The military appeared to have backed down at that point, saying they would um, act according to the law and uphold the 2008 constitution. So there was a sort of um, a sense of relief, actually, that the crisis seemed to have been averted. Um, and then uh, Monday morning last week, February 1st, in the, in the early morning, um, the, the military moved to arrest Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, many of the top uh, NLD um, political leaders, uh, a wider circle as well of kind of artists and activists, um, and transferred power to Min Aung Laing. Um, the, there, there is kind of a little bit of background around a series of a series of negotiations between the military and the National League for Democracy, where um, kind of proxies stood in for senior general men online and Aung San Suu Kyi sent um, some of her kind of trusted, um, trusted representatives. And this series of meetings went very poorly. And there's speculation that um, it was kind of the, the breakdown of those attempted negotiations that led the military to seize power. So in, in, in a kind of immediate context, it was um, supposedly this kind of election dispute that led to the military seizing power. Yeah, it's been barely two weeks at this point since that happened. And the situation on the ground is changing every day. Now, I realize you're not in Burma right now, but what are you hearing from friends and family who are in the country? What's the atmosphere like? It's pretty tense. A lot of people are expecting um, a military crackdown relatively soon. There have been reports of kind of police security forces sort of shifting away and military forces sort of moving into protest sites in recent days. Um, Pretty much every day I've seen concerns about um, violent crackdowns. And there has been some violence already for sure. Um, But so far, nothing on the scale of um, like 1988, for example, when the military um, killed several thousand people. I think that's still possible, um, but it hasn't happened yet. On the other hand, it's it's clear that the mood at the many of the protests is quite jubilant as well. Um, there's a lot of really um, creative protest repertoires being used. Um, a lot of a lot of great signs, great slogans, and and outfits and that sort of thing. So you have this kind of balance between a, a, a concern that things could go really badly with um, this sort of like festive mood at the protests. I imagine that following this protest feels quite different, say, from following the protests in 2007 when nobody had a smartphone. And I mean, this protest, like a lot of contemporary ones, feels like it is taking place online, too, you know, except when the military shuts down Facebook or the Internet. Do you feel like smartphones and social media are changing things? You know, my my cousin, for example, um, just super anecdotally in, in Yangon is has his smartphone and he's sending me updates of protests. And not everyone has a smartphone and not everyone is doing that sort of thing. Um, but um, there's certainly a different kind of uh, a different kind of media environment around these protests, for sure. There might be you could argue maybe that there's um, more of an attempt because of that to sort of appeal to international audiences in a broader sense. 
But obviously the military did move quickly to try to restrict that information environment as well. My understanding is the the internet sort of shutdown that happened was lifted because banks pushed back and said that we actually need internet to run our sort of everyday um, financial operations. So there, there, there are limits on the limits <laughs> to the military's um, ability to control the information environment. But I, I think in a, in a very superficial sense, I mean, one, one sees a different range of images um, this time around than in 2007, for sure. I, I do wonder kind of how decisive that difference might or might not end up being. Um, but again, this is there's a lot happening on the ground and, and a lot is changing and we'll have to see how that sort of unfolds going forward. Does it seem like the same demographics that came out in 2007 or earlier in 1988 when Aung San Suu Kyi first rose to prominence? Are, and are these the largest demonstrations we've seen since then? That's a difficult question. I think there, 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 there could be room for a kind of empirical comparison between what's going on here and, and 2007, for example. Um, when a lot of people hit the streets um, during the kind of monk-led protests, right, known as Saffron Revolution. Um, I've, I've heard some people say that these protests seem to be bigger than 2007. Um, I think it's really difficult to say at this point. In terms of 1988, though, you know, 1988 is remembered as uh, very much a, a, a kind of student-led uprising, and, and for good reason. Um, I think part of that is because of the subsequent legacy of the National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi um, being sort of known as a, a party and a kind of political project more broadly grounded in student politics. But if you actually go back to the historical record of 88, we see labor unions, um, kind of worker actions, student unions, people um, having taken over different neighborhoods and barricaded parts of Yangon, the commercial capital. So I, I think the, the memory of 1988 is not quite correct in many ways. So if, if you compare the current set of protests to 88, you might say that this is a less kind of student-led protest. It's a sort of broader, um, a broader demographic. A, a lot of different kinds of people seem to be coming out compared to 88. Um, you have seen a, a kind of student demographic in the streets for sure, but you've seen quite um, sort of visible representation of different ethnic nationality groups, LGBTI groups hitting the streets, a huge geographic spread across the country. It, it's tempting to say that the current protests are are broader in some ways than the kind of student-led 88 uprising. But I think that sort of misreads 88, actually. That seems to be a tendency of history, right, to reduce things down. And I mean, do you think that's happening with the current coup, with reducing this to a kind of personal conflict between Aung San Suu Kyi and the military generals. How true do you think that is, that this is all personal? I, I think that's, I think it's fair to say it's a significant part of the story. I don't think we can end our attempted analysis at that point. It's, it's clear that personal relations between Min Aung Lai and Aung San Suu Kyi um, became poor um, in recent months and frankly had been poor for, for quite a long time. But it's, it seems to me there's a lot of kind of speculation about their personal animus um, that's driving a lot of analysis. It seems to me a sort of analytical mistake to assume that what happens at the top determines an entire kind of political and economic terrain. Um, so I, I think as kind of scholars or researchers, it's, it's our responsibility in a sense to do a little bit more than this palace watching, this palace intrigue, 
um, which for a long time in Burma has sort of stood in for analysis as such. And there's sort of reasons for that. I mean, it's been a closed media environment in many for, for quite a long, it was for quite a long time, um, which led to a lot of sort of rumors about people at the top and sort of what they're up to, what kind of meetings were happening and not happening, who was having dinner and who's compound and who wasn't. Um, and this this is still, I mean, fr- friends of mine in, in Myanmar are still, um, there's still a lot of kind of political speculation that happens around these things. And I, I again, I, I don't, I don't, um, uh, I don't deny that these things matter. Um, it's just that, that there's a lot else that we have to take into account as well. Um, and if we want to develop a, a sort of serious set of political analyses that could also inform um, popular struggles in some sense moving forward, um, I think that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think something too about that narrative that that makes me wonder how how much it should dominate the situation is that you know the military already had a ton of power. The constitution is written in a way that they're guaranteed enough of a block in parliament so that the constitution can't be rewritten to write them out. Um, And so one of the questions for me really is like, well, why stage a coup of a country that you already really do have control of in a big sense? Right, exactly. They they see it as more or less consistent, right? I mean, the, the, the kind of dominant analysis thus far has been if the military had sort of built a, a situation that was really working to their favor, why would they have seized power if not for sort of reasons of irrational personal animus? Like that that's sort of the only possible explanation. But, you know, I think it's possible to look to a lot of other issues. It's worth noting, for example, that the economic situation in the country has declined considerably in the last few years. Um, the national ceasefire process has um, not gone well under the National League for Democracy governments at all. It's worth thinking about um, Chinese investment and, and broader regional politics. It, it's, it seems to me that these, these kind of broader factors need to be addressed to some degree. And um, if, if we consider them and come to the conclusion that, in fact, they, they haven't driven events, that's one thing. But um, so far, at least, it, they seem to have been not really considered at all, unfortunately. Okay, well, what about, you know, what about the economic situation makes you think that that's key to this equation? Do we have to go back to the start of the so-called experiment with democracy? One of the comparisons that has become a sort of hobby horse of, of mine, something I tend to think about maybe a little bit more often than necessary, but it, but it always seems to pop up for me at least, is why, why it was after the elections that followed the 88 uprising, the military was not willing to concede power to the NLD, whereas um, in 2015 um, and more broadly until recently, the military did seem willing to concede power to a, a formerly civilian government. Um, because there, in, the, in the 1990s, a kind of state-managed transition to a market-oriented, at least, economy began. And you had, for example, the return of foreign investment. You had a handful of so-called national entrepreneurs, um, popularly known as crony capitalists, who emerged in the 90s. You have the founding of two military holding companies. You have as well a lot of uh, investment flowing into uh, border areas. There had also, I I should add, been a sort of broad series of privatizations of state assets that largely went to military-affiliated companies and individuals. By the late aughts, the military had accumulated a high degree of economic power in this kind of burgeoning private sector. And um, a a number of us made the argument that 
in some sense, perhaps the military had centralized its economic power in such a way that formal political control was not no longer necessary, but no longer as necessary in order to exert control more broadly in the country. That, that does need to be reconsidered, right? Why have they reclaimed power now? But that, that's why it's interesting to me that the economic situation did decline in the last few years. I mean, I think it would be really difficult to claim that this is sort of the decisive factor. But I do think it's possible to argue that the kind of um, elite pact that had formed between the military and the National League for Democracy or a hegemonic bloc, right, that for the military, if there's a way of sort of advancing liberal democracy that could then um, bring further sort of foreign capital into the country that could sort of enrich their economic interests even further. If that sort of economic dynamic has slowed down uh, in some way in the last few years, then you could argue that the sort of material conditions that sustained that hegemonic bloc um, have not necessarily fallen apart, but maybe they can't sort of nourish that relationship in the way that they once might have been able to. As a caveat to that, it is worth noting that, I mean, a lot of the military's kind of economic basis comes from sort of heavy industries, resource extraction, industries that have not really taken a hit in the last few years. So there's moving parts that need to be considered. So what about international investment and sanctions against those? There's, you know, there's been a ton of money coming in from Asian countries, but also from the West in recent years. And it seems like the U.S. will impose a first round of sanctions this week. But we've done sanctions before, and it seems like despite that, economic elites in Burma have prospered anyway from, you know, economic developments. So how have how have regular people been affected? It's worth keeping in mind that while Western capital did largely withdraw for an extended period of time, the capitalist transition from the 90s onward was was very much driven by East and Southeast Asia, not Western capital. So I I think the withdrawal of Western capital is something that would affect more sort of petty bourgeois, sort of maybe middle class in some sense that would be more urban, a little bit more affluent um, compared to the vast majority of the country. The first few years following 2010 in Yangon, you saw the rise of um, consumer capitalism in, in certain ways, certain kinds of consumer goods that were suddenly available, mobile phones internet access, um, some of these kinds of things did suddenly sort of emerge. And for some people, this was seen as a sort of massive transformation in the country. And, and I wouldn't want to kind of underplay um, the importance of these kinds of dynamics, but uh, it would be an understatement to say that this was a sort of uneven process, right? And so much kind of political um, discourse is really sort of rooted in Yangon. <laughs> um, and what happens in Yangon tends to get generalized in a way that's um, kind of not very accurate or, or, or very healthy in some ways. Um, so I would, I would just sort of caution that I think some of what was understood to be the sort of economic benefits of formerly civilian government that was more friendly to Western capital um, did not necessarily sort of spread across the country in a, in a way that would have been particularly even in any way. Yeah, I think that gets even more complicated when we go back to what you said earlier about the military's presence in the borderlands. So much of that resource extraction, logging, copper mining, all that happens in these ethnic minority states 
So how does bringing in these borderlands into the picture of the coup complicate things, both with the economic situation and even the election in November? Because a lot of those were just canceled in those minority states, right? So, I mean, in some ways, the election was illegitimate, but not quite in the way that the military alleged. Exactly. Yeah, it it has been striking, I think, that within a political crisis um, supposedly attuned to um, a series of election disputes, there hasn't been a lot of discussion of the fact that the elections simply didn't take place in fairly large parts of um, fairly large parts of the country, as you say, in, in, in ethnic nationality parts of the country. It, it will take some time to sort of work out some of these dynamics. But one argument that I find um, fairly compelling is that from, again, the, the 1990s, my, my favorite decade for bringing into discussion, a lot of the kind of investment dynamics that started to take off in the 90s in terms of um, timber, mining, um, agro-industries, um, plantations of various kinds, um, especially palm oil in the far south, but um, other kinds of plantations in the north. There's one argument that says that these forms of investment formed political business complexes that incorporated ethnic minority elites into this kind of larger capitalist transition. So if it's the case that these kinds of investment dynamics ended the existential threat to the Myanmar state that armed groups in these areas once posed, then what does it mean that formal electoral disenfranchisement has happened on the back of this recent political crisis? Um, I'm a little skeptical. The thing is, I, I think it would be a mistake to see a lot of people who live in these areas as having understood themselves to be enfranchised in the first place. And I think that the kind of um, economic dynamics that tend to be tied to resource extraction and agro-industry tend to be tied to sort of military companies or military-linked companies and individuals more than um, kind of NLD faction um, of the the sort of state apparatus. So I I think a lot of what we've seen over the past 30 or so years in the borderlands is more or less set to continue. But it is striking that, that there hasn't been a lot of discussion of the borderlands in the context of this recent political crisis, given that the election didn't even happen in a lot of these areas. Yeah, and it's not the first time they've been left out either, right? I mean, for years, ethnic minorities of all kinds, but especially the Rohingya, have been denied national ID cards or had theirs revoked or confiscated. Yeah, exactly. So given that history, that bad blood, how are ethnic minorities engaging with the current coup? Are they protesting? Are they staying home? I doubt they're supporting the military, but... No, definitely protesting, definitely protesting from Miachina in, in Kachin State in the far north, in fairly remote parts of Chin State, in, in Shan State, in northern Shan State even, and in, in other parts of Shan State, certainly in Karen State and in, in the south, in Tanindai, and in the Rohingya camps in Bangladesh as well, which has been been really kind of amazing to see, um, which is a, a kind of generosity that is, is really amazing. Um for me, I, I would hope it might inspire a kind of rethinking on the part of, of sort of lowland Burman subjects relative to the peace process in some sense, um, because the National League for Democracy did not prove itself to be sincere or forthcoming when it came to addressing um, 
kind of generational grievances on the part of ethnic nationality groups in many parts of the country. So this kind of broad reaction to the coup from a lot of uh, ethnic nationality groups you would hope might um, inspire a, a different kind of politics on the part of kind of lowland Burman subjects. Um, but again, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes um, moving forward. So what's the lingering question in your mind watching these protests unfold, watching the coup continue? Hmm. I guess the the main, you know, the the most pressing question at the moment is whether to what extent a serious military crackdown will happen. You know, in in 1988, I if I believe it it took about six weeks for that to to sort of build, um, and uh, it's it's been something like ten days at the moment, and maybe you know uh, sort of twelve days by the time this comes out. Um, so we might we might not have seen that at that point and hopefully needless to say we'll, we'll never see it um but that's sort of an obvious thing to to pay attention to and and i mean there's a lot of um like i said i mean a lot of people are sort of closely following um sort of military movements in the country sort of troop buildups in different urban centers i think another thing to to keep in mind is that um the first people to kind of step up in in terms of this kind of civil disobedience movement were, were medical workers early on um, and then it, more broadly, kind of public sector workers. And then in the first days of larger street demonstrations, you had um, workers coming from the industrial zones into kind of central Yangon to help swell and drive those protests and in many ways lead those protests. Sort of women workers um, associated with pretty strong um, trade unions in the industrial zones. So, I mean, I think this is, I'm tempted to say the kind of class composition of this kind of protest movement is something to keep an eye on, I think, because so far the kinds of demands we've seen are strong and, and very much worthwhile, right? I mean, to, to sort of end military rule, to abolish the 2008 constitution, establish federal democracy, free um, the political prisoners that have been taken. Um, we haven't really seen a shift towards in any sense, kind of economic demands. There has been some discussion of whether to what extent, for example, something like nationalizing the military holding companies could become a demand or um, uh, land reform in some ways, maybe repealing their sort of two um, notorious land laws from 2012 that were responsible for legalizing massive land grabs across the country, especially in highland areas. Um, maybe a, a sort of land reform demand could become part of this movement as well. I mean, there have been signs that farmers in a kind of self-described sense have become more visible in some protests recently. There were sort of um, images circulating of people on tractors kind of running protests in, in the last day or so. So I think it, it could be interesting to see if the way that workers and farmers have or have not been part of these protests I mean, that, that could lead to some, some more potentially far-reaching kinds of economic demands, which I think could be quite productive going forwards. Otherwise, to the extent that the protests are kind of bathed in the iconography of kind of NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi, it's reasonable to worry, I think, that the kind of horizon of that imagination is just a return to the recent status quo, um, which I, I think would be a huge, huge mistake. I should say that while the kind of NLD iconography was quite strong in the first few days of the sort of larger street demonstrations, 
I think it has kind of changed a little bit. And there have been calls circulating, for example, for protesters to wear black or to wear blue, um, which signifies workers. Um, and a, a sort of shift away from some of that NLD symbolism. I think that's quite reassuring. If this kind of movement were to continue building and succeed, it would be just a huge mistake to try to restore the status quo, which was already hugely damaging for workers and farmers across the country. So I think that would be another thing to, to keep an eye on going forward. There are links in the show notes to Jeff Aung's commentary on Burma and some videos of the protests. One of my favorites is someone filming from an open window for 30 minutes as people stream down a city street. And the song right now in the background is one you might hear in coverage of the protest, the so-called theme song of the 8888 uprising, We Won't Be Satisfied Till the End of the World, composed by Naing Myanma and set to the tune of Dust in the Wind by Kansas which was a hit in Burma at the time. Here's hoping it doesn't take till the end of the world for real change to come to Myanmar.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.